came up heads, the volunteer was assigned to be a guard. If it was tails, a prisoner. The guards were told yesterday that they had come up heads. They came to our little jail in the basement of Stanford's psychology department to help us put the finishing touches on it so that they would feel like it was their place. Each of them picked out a uniform at the local army surplus store, and they're waiting now for the action to begin. Did they get any training to be guards? Wish I had time to do that, but all we did was give them a brief orientation yesterday. No specific training in how to act their new role. The main thing is for them to maintain law and order, no violence against prisoners, and not allow any escapes. I also try to convey to them the kind of psychological mindset of prisoners being powerless that we want to create in this prison. The kids you are going to arrest were simply told to wait at home, in a dormitory, or at some designated house if they lived too far away. And they would be hearing from us this morning. And so they soon will, huh, Joe? We'll give them the real thing. I'm a little confused about a couple of things. Sure, fire away, Joe. You too, Bill, if there is something you want to know to help share later with your producer for tonight's show. My question is this, Doc. What's the point of going through all the trouble to set up a prison of your own down at Stanford, arresting these college students, paying out all that money, when we already have prisons enough and criminals enough? Why not just observe what goes on in the county jail or the action over at San Quentin? Wouldn't that tell you what you want to know about guards and prisoners in real prisons? Joe had hit the nail right on the head. Instantly, I was into my college professor role, eager to profess to curious listeners. I'm interested in discovering what it means psychologically to be a prisoner or a prison guard. What changes does a person undergo in the process of adapting to that new role? Is it possible in the short time of only a few weeks to take on a new identity that is different from one's usual self? There have been studies of actual prison life by sociologists and criminologists, but they suffer from some serious drawbacks. Those researchers are never free to observe all phases of prison life. Their observations are usually limited in scope, without much direct access to prisoners and even less to the guards. Since there are only two classes of people that populate prisons, staff and inmates, all researchers are outsiders viewed with suspicion, if not distrust, by all the system's insiders. They can see only what they are allowed to see on guided tours that rarely get beneath the surface of prison life. We'd like to better understand the deeper structure of the prisoner-guard relationship by recreating the psychological environment of a prison, and then to be in a position to observe, record, and document the entire process of becoming indoctrinated into the mental set of prisoner and guard. Yes, I guess it makes sense the way you put it, Bill chimes in. But the big difference between your Stanford jail and real ones is the type of prisoners and guards you're starting out with. In real prison, we're dealing with criminal types, violent guys who think nothing about breaking the law or attacking guards. And you gotta have tough guards to keep them in line, ready to break heads if necessary. Your sweet little Stanford kids aren't mean or violent or tough, like real guards and prisoners are. Let me throw in a zinger, says Bob. How can you expect these college kids who know they're getting 15 bucks a day for doing nothing will not just cool it for two weeks, have some fun and games at your expense, Doc? First, I should mention that our subjects are not all Stanford students. Only a few are. The other 
tourists come from all over the country and even from Canada. As you know, a lot of young people come to the Bay Area in the summer, and we've recruited a cross-section of them who were just finishing summer school at Stanford or Berkeley. But you're right in saying that the Stanford County Jail will not be populated with the usual prison types. We went out of our way to select young men who seemed to be normal, healthy, and average on all the psychological dimensions we measured, along with Craig here and another advanced graduate student, Kurt Banks. I carefully selected our final sample from among all those we interviewed. Craig, who had been waiting patiently for this sign of recognition from his mentor to get a word in edgewise, was ready to add to the thesis being laid down. In a real prison, when we observe some event, for example, prisoners stabbing each other or guards smashing an inmate, we can't determine the extent to which the particular person or the particular situation is responsible. There are indeed some prisoners who are violent sociopaths, and there are some guards who are sadistic. But do their personalities account for all or even most of what goes on in prison? I doubt it. We have to take the situation into account. I beamed at Craig's eloquent argument. I also shared the same dispositional doubt, but felt reassured to have Craig put it so well to the police officers. I continued warming into my best mini-lecture style. The rationale is this. Our research will attempt to differentiate between what people bring into a prison situation from what the situation brings out in the people who are there. By pre-selection, our subjects are generally representative of middle-class, educated youth. They are a homogenous group of students who are quite similar to each other in many ways. By randomly assigning them to the two different roles, we begin with guards and prisoners who are comparable, indeed are interchangeable. The prisoners are not more violent, hostile, or rebellious than the guards, and the guards aren't more power-seeking authoritarians. At this moment, prisoner and guard are one and alike. No one wanted to be a guard. No one really committed any crime that would justify imprisonment and punishment. In two weeks, will these youngsters still be so indistinguishable? Will their roles change their personalities? Will we see any transformations of their character? That's what we plan to discover. Craig added, Another way of looking at it is, you're putting good people in an evil situation to see who or what wins. Thanks, Craig. I like that, gushed cameraman Bill. My director will want to use that tonight as a tea. The station didn't have a communicaster available this morning, so I have to both shoot and also come up with some angles to hook the arrest footage on. Say, Professor, time is running. I'm ready. Can we get started now? Of course, Bill. But, Joe, I never did answer your first question about the experiment. Which was? Whether the prisoners knew they would be arrested as part of the experiment. The answer is no. They were merely told to be available for participation in the experiment this morning. They may assume that the arrest is part of the research, since they know they did not commit the crimes for which they will be charged. If they ask you about the experiment, be vague. Neither say it is or isn't. Just go about doing your duty as if it were a real arrest. Ignore any of their questions or protests. Craig couldn't resist adding, In a sense, the arrest like everything else they will be experiencing, should merge reality and illusion, role-playing and identity. A bit flowery, I thought, but 
certainly worth seeing. Just before Joe started the siren on his all-white squad car, he put on his silver reflecting sunglasses, the kind the guard wore in the movie Cool Hand Luke, the kind that prevents anyone from seeing your eyes. I grinned, as did Craig, knowing that all our guards would be donning the same anonymity-inducing goggles as part of our attempt to create a sense of de-individuation. Art, life, and research were beginning to merge. There's a cop knocking on the door. Mama, Mama, there's a policeman at the door and he's going to arrest Hubby, screeched the youngest Whitlow girl. Mrs. Dexter Whitlow didn't quite hear the message, but from the sound of Nina's screech, there was some sort of trouble that father should attend to. Please ask your father to see to it. Mrs. Whitlow was involved in examining her conscience because she had many misgivings about the changes that had been taking place in the church services from which she had just returned. She had also been thinking a lot about Hubby recently, preparing herself for a life of twice-a-year visits from her beautiful, fuzzy, blonde, blue-eyed charmer. One blessing of his going away to college that she secretly prayed for was the out-of-sight, out-of-mind effect that would cool the all-too-obvious passion between Hubby and his girlfriend from Palo Alto High School. For men, a good career had to come before hasty marriage plans, she told him often. The only fault she could find in this lovable child was that he sometimes got carried away when he was with his friends, like last month when they had painted the tile rooftops on the high school for pranks, or when they went about reversing and ripping off street signs. It's plain silly and immature, hubby, and you could get in trouble for it. Mama, Dad's not home. He's over at the golf course with Mr. Marston, and hubby's downstairs being arrested by a policeman. Hubby Whitlow, you're wanted on a violation of penal code number 459, residential burglary. I'm going to take you to police headquarters for booking. Before I search and handcuff you, I must warn you of your rights as a citizen. Mindful of the TV camera grinding away, recording for posterity this classic arrest, Joe was all super cop in stance and all Dragnet's cool Joe Friday in delivery. Let me make some facts clear. You have the right to remain silent and are not required to answer any questions. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law have the right to consult an attorney before you answer any questions, and an attorney may be present during the questioning. And if you have no funds to hire an attorney, the public defender will provide you with one to represent you at all stages of the proceedings. Do you understand your rights? Good. Having these rights in mind, I am taking you to Central Station for booking on the crime you are charged with. Now come peacefully over to the squad car. Mrs. Whitlow was stunned to see her son being body-searched, handcuffed, and spread-eagled against the police car like a common criminal one sees on the TV news. Gathering her composure, she demanded courteously, What is this all about, officer? Ma'am, I have instructions to arrest Hubby Whitlow on charges of burglary. He... I know, officer. I told him not to take those street signs, that he shouldn't be influenced by those Jennings boys. Mama, you don't understand. This is part of... Officer Hubby's a good boy. His father and I will be glad to pay for the costs of replacing anything that was taken. You see, it was just a prank. Nothing serious intended. By now, a small crowd of neighbors was gathering 
respectable distance, lured by the treat of a threat to someone's security or safety. Mrs. Whitlow made a special effort not to notice them, so as not to be distracted from the task at hand, ingratiating herself with the police officer so he would be nicer to her son. If only George were here, he'd know how to handle the situation, she thought. This is what happens when golf comes before God on Sunday. Okay, let's move along. We've got a busy schedule. There's a lot more arrests to be made this morning, Joe said as he moved the suspect into the squad car. Mama, Dad knows all about it. Ask him. He signed the release. It's all right. Don't worry. It's just part of... The wailing siren of the squad car and its flashing lights brought out even more curious neighbors to console poor Mrs. Whitlow, whose son seemed like such a nice boy. Hubby felt uneasy for the first time, seeing his mother's distress and feeling guilty sitting there alone in the back seat of a cop car, handcuffed behind the cop's protective mesh screen. So this is how it feels to be a criminal, he was thinking, when his pink cheeks suddenly flushed with embarrassment as neighbor Palmer pointed at him and exclaimed to his daughter, What is this world coming to? Now it's the Whitlow boy who's committed a crime. At the station, the booking procedure was dispatched with customary efficiency, given the cooperativeness of the suspect. Officer Bob took charge of Hubby while Joe discussed with us how this first arrest had gone. I thought it had taken a little too long, considering that there were eight more to go. However, the cameraman wanted it to move more slowly so he could get positioned better, since he had to shoot only a few good arrest sequences to convey the story. We agreed that the next arrest could be deliberate in its film sequences, but after that, good TV shots or not, the experiment would come first, and the arrests would have to be sped up. Whitlow alone had already taken 30 minutes. At that rate, it would take most of the day to complete the arrests. I was mindful that the police's cooperation was not independent of the power of the media, so I worried that once the filming was completed, they might be reluctant to follow through with all the remaining arrests on the list. Interesting as this part of the study was to observe, I knew that its success was not under my control. So many things could go wrong, most of which I had anticipated and tried to counteract, but there was always the unexpected event that could wipe out even the best laid plans. There are too many uncontrolled variables in the real world, or the field, as social scientists that's the comfort of laboratory research. The experimenter is in charge. The action is all under exquisite control. The subject is on the researcher's turf. It's as the police interrogation manuals caution. Never interrogate suspects or witnesses in their homes. Bring them to the station where you can capitalize on the unfamiliarity, seize on the lack of social supports, and in addition, you need not worry about unplanned interruptions. I tried gently to urge the policeman to move a bit faster, but Bill kept intruding with requests for one more shot, one more angle. Joe was blindfolding Hubby. Form C-11-6, Bureau of Criminal Identification and Investigation, had been completed with the required information and full set of fingerprints, with only the mugshot remaining. We would do that with our Polaroid camera at our jail to save time shooting after all prisoners were in their new uniforms.
Bobby had navigated through the booking process without comment or emotion after his first and only attempt at a joke had been rebuffed by Joe. What are you, a wise guy or something? Now he was sitting in a small detention cell at Central Station, blindfolded, alone, and helpless, wondering why he had ever gotten himself into this mess and asking himself whether it was worth it. But he took solace in knowing that if things got too tough to handle, his father and his cousin, the public defender, could be counted on to arrive and get him out of the contract. Oink, oink, the pigs are here. The next arrest scenario played itself out in a small Palo Alto apartment. Doug, wake up, damn it. It's the police. One minute, please. He's coming. Get your pants on, will you? What do you mean, the police? What do they want with us? Look, Susie, don't get uptight. Act cool. You haven't done anything they could prove. Let me do the talking to the pigs. I know my rights. The fascists can't push us around. Sensing a troublemaker at hand, Officer Bob used his friendly persuasion approach. Are you Mr. Doug Carlson? Yeah, what of it? I'm sorry, but you are suspected of penal code violation number 459, burglary. And I'm taking you downtown to the station for booking. You have the right to remain silent. You have... Cut it. I know my rights. I'm not a college graduate for nothing. Where's the warrant for my arrest? As Bob was thinking about how to handle this problem tactfully, Doug heard the nearby church bells tolling. It's Sunday. He had forgotten it was Sunday. He said to himself, Prisoner, huh? So that's the game. I prefer it. Didn't go to college to become a pig. But I might get ripped off by the police someday, like I almost did at last year's anti-war riots at Cal. As I told the interviewer, Haney, I think it was, I don't want this for the money and not the experience, because the whole idea sounds ridiculous, and I don't think it'll work. But I'd like to see how I deal with being oppressed as a political prisoner. I have to laugh when I think of their silly question. Estimate the likelihood of your remaining in the prison experiment for the full two weeks on a zero to 100% scale. For me, 100%, with no sweat. Not a real prison, only a simulated prison. If I don't dig it, I quit. Just walk away. And I wonder how they reacted to my answer to, what would you like to be doing ten years from now? My ideal occupation, which I hope would entail an active part in the world's future, the revolution. Who am I? What is unique about me? How's my straight-from-the-shoulder answer? From a religious perspective, I'm an atheist. From a conventional perspective, I'm a fanatic. From a political perspective, I'm a socialist. From a mental health perspective, I'm healthy. From an existential social perspective, I'm split, dehumanized, and detached. And I don't cry much. Doug was reflecting on the oppression of the poor and the need to seize power back from the capitalist military rulers of this country as he sat defiantly in the rear of the squad car on its swift journey to the station house. It's good to be a prisoner, he thought. All the exciting revolutionary ideas have come out of the prison experience. He felt a kinship with Soledad brother George Jackson, liked his letters, and knew that in the solidarity of all oppressed people lies the strength to win the revolution. He 
maybe this little experiment would be the first step in training his mind and body for the eventual struggle against the fascists ruling America. The booking officer ignored Doug's flippant comments as his height, weight, and fingerprints were efficiently recorded. He was all business. Joe easily rolled each finger to get a clear set of fingerprints, even when Doug tried to make his hand rigid. Doug was a bit surprised at how strong the pig was, or maybe he was just a little weak from hunger, since he hadn't had any breakfast yet. Out of somber proceedings evolved a slightly paranoid thought. Hey, maybe those rat finks at Stanford really turned me into the cops. What a fool I was, giving them so much personal background that they might use against me. Hey, copper, Doug called out in his high-pitched voice. Tell me again, what am I charged with? Burglary. On a first conviction, you could be paroled in a couple of years. I am prepared to be arrested, sir. The next scenario occurs at the designated pickup place for Tom Thompson, the porch of my secretary, Roseanne. Tom was built like a baby bull, five feet, eight inches tall, 170 pounds of solid muscle under his trooper. If there were ever a no-nonsense person, it was this 18-year-old soldier boy. When we had asked him in our interview, what would you like to be doing ten years from now? His reply was surprising. Where and what are unimportant. The kind of work would involve organization and efficiency, producing in unorganized and inefficient areas of our government. Marital plans? I plan to marry only after I am solid financially. Therapy, drugs, tranquilizers, or criminal experience? I have never committed a criminal act. I still remember the experience when I was five or six of seeing my father take a piece of candy to eat in a store while shopping. I was ashamed of his act. In order to save on rent money, Tom Thompson had been sleeping in the back seat of his car, accommodations that were neither comfortable nor well-suited to study. Recently, he had had to fight off a spider that bit me twice, once on the eye and once on the lip. Nevertheless, he had just completed a full summer school course load in order to advance his credit standing. He was also working 45 hours a week at assorted jobs and eating leftover food at the student food service to save up for next fall's tuition. As a result of his tenacity and frugality, Tom planned to graduate six months early was also bulking up by exercising seriously in his spare time, which apparently he had a lot of, given his total absence of dates or close friends. To be a paid participant in the prison study was the ideal job for Tom, since his studies and summer jobs were now over, and he needed the money. Three square meals a day, a real bed, and maybe a hot shower were like winning the lottery. However, more than anything else, or anyone else, he envisioned the next two weeks as a paid vacation. He had not been doing squats for long on the porch at 450 Kingsley Street, where he was waiting to start his stint in our experiment, before the squad car pulled up behind his 65 Chevy. At a distance was Haney's Fiat, with the undaunted cameraman filming what was to be the last outside arrest. After this, He'd get more interior footage in the station, then over at our mock prison. 
Bill was eager to get back over to KRON with some hot video for what is usually a tame Sunday evening news show. I'm Tom Thompson, sir. I am prepared to be arrested without any resistance. Bob was leery of this one. He might be some kind of nut who wanted to prove something with his karate lessons. The handcuffs were slapped on right away, even before Miranda rights were read. And his search for concealed weapons was more thorough than it had been with the others, because he had a funny feeling about guys who showed this particular kind of non-resistance. It was too cocky, too self-assured for someone facing an arrest. Usually it meant a trap of some kind. The dude was packing a gun, a false arrest charge was in the making, or there was something else out of the ordinary. I'm no psychologist, Joe told me later. There's something off the wall about that guy Thompson. He's like a military drill officer, a sergeant in the enemy. Fortunately, there were no crimes that Sunday in Palo Alto, or cats stranded up trees to summon Bob and Joe away from finishing their ever more efficient arrest procedures. By early afternoon, all of our prisoners had been booked and taken down to our jail, to the eager waiting arms of our guards in the making. These young men would be leaving this sunny Palo Alto paradise, going down a short concrete staircase into the transformed basement of the psychology department in Jordan Hall on Sarah Street. For some, it would become a descent into hell. Chapter 3. Let Sunday's Degradation Rituals Begin. Still blindfolded, each prisoner 